By the time the Athens-Georgia-based rock band R.E.M. released Out of Time in 1991, they'd been a group for 11 years and released six albums. They had multiple hits, including The One I Love, It's the End of the World as We Know It, Stand, and more. Their previous album, Green, felt like a major success, selling 4 million copies worldwide. The band toured heavily behind the record and built a much larger mainstream audience based partially on the push by their new label, Warner Brothers. However, the 1991 release of Out of Time launched R.E.M. from a niche rock band with a cult following to a worldwide phenomenon. Losing My Religion was everywhere that year. Despite not touring behind the album, it became a worldwide success, selling 18 million copies and reaching number one in seven different countries. Even though the band has sold almost 100 million albums in their career, R.E.M. faded into obscurity after the 90s, disbanded in 2011, and are rarely mentioned or played these days. Today on Hidden Jukebox, we discuss Out of Time by R.E.M. And today we have a special guest on our show. Who is it, me? It's not you. I, I think you've been here, actually. Yeah, okay. Okay. It's Rich McLaughlin, a good friend of mine. Uh, he has worked for uh, Sirius XM Radio, WFUV, iHeartRadio, and now Amazon Music. Don't brag too much, buddy. R.E.M. never faded into obscurity. <laughs> that is completely erroneous. <laughs> he also happens to be a bigger R.E.M. fan than Matthew Amster Burton, which is a hard thing to say. So I I might have to lean back on this episode a little bit and let you guys take over. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe I based just on the uh, the page of notes that's sitting next to you. I feel like maybe I've met my match. <laughs> I um I think I'm R.E.M. fan B, as someone at Warner Brother Records referred to me as. There is an R.E.M. fan A. But you do not want to meet that guy. No, you do not want to meet that guy. <laughs> or, or you don't want to meet R.E.M. fan B either, for that matter. <laughs> Today on our six-hour episode of Hidden Jukebox. <laughs> okay, I have a question, and like I should have put this out by email so we could have maybe researched it, but is there any other band who has had a stronger run of year-after-year albums than R.E.M.? So... 1983, Murmur. 1984, Reckoning. 1985, uh, Fables of the Reconstruction. 1986, Life's Rich Pageant. 1987, Document. 1988, Green. Like, 1991. Yeah, 1991. Time. But they took, you know, they took a couple of years off to go on a gigantic world tour. It's, it's pretty insane. And... None of them were as big of hits as Out of Time. I mean, no, no, it's like like eighty eight Green. They're going to take a year off. Like it would have been fine if they had been like, all right, you know, we're gonna we're gonna like make a, a greatest hits album and and uh, you know go our separate ways at this point. But no, then they made like four more great albums. Wait a minute, possibly they, more. They did make a Sun. greatest hits album right then. They made Eponymous right then. Okay, that's true. <laughs> I think if you're in a rock and roll band and your goal is longevity and you also want to think about a slow build versus becoming huge and then just dropping from there or no one caring you know on the other other side of the of the spectrum rem is that band that you look to because their trajectory is perfect as a band yes. i think uh, out of time was their seventh album yeah and so that which is crazy when you think about it uh, although it's it's pretty odd because when you look at and i think you're right those those albums all before out of time are all great records but no one really you don't hear too much about them no these days which is kind of puzzling I'll give you that, Jake. Fading into obscurity, though, that's that's a little extreme. Well, they they released four albums in the 2000s, and I realized this week that I can name absolutely none of the albums and none of the tracks off the albums, and I consider myself to be a pretty big R.E.M. fan well, from you're the not. 90s. No, you shouldn't consider yourself that <laughs> if you can't name albums by the band. So a we're going to strip fair. you of that. Absolutely okay? fair. <laughs> Accelerate. <laughs> Around the sun. Reveal is uh, that so what after up um, so after New Adventures and Hi Fi right you know Bill Barry left the band yes and then they released Up and then they released Reveal and then they released Around the Sun Accelerate Collapse, Collapse into, into Now, now. yeah which Collapse into Now is actually their their least successful commercial record because both Up see people don't know this about Up and Reveal those those records are both R I A A um, gold records sure which at that time. Well, maybe not up because that was ninety eight and ninety nine, but accelerate in two thousand one. That was you know the decline of CD sales had already begun at that point. So right. the fact that that record was a gold record is, it speaks to how huge REM were at one point in time. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to point this out real quick. 
not that it has anything to do with R.E.M., but I'm pretty sure that NSYNC released No Strings Attached in 2004, and that album sold 2.4 million copies in its first week. Was it that? I thought that album came out earlier than that, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong, too. But, but also, I think that was at a point where, and, and I think that, because was that Eminem record that the Eminem top in sync or did in sync top Eminem? In sync topped Ari. Eminem, They both topped Ari. Same deal. But I think that was also at a point where record labels were putting, like in those two particular examples, a ton of money behind making those records sell well. Yes. Those two particular records. I mean, those they were outliers compared to every other CD released those years. No strings attached. Two thousand. Okay, see, I, yep, I, I knew that. Okay, so th- this was my concern in the first place is that it's really easy to get off topic and away from the album we're covering today, which oh, is out sure of time. Oh, it sure is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to inevitably... Right, the podcast police will definitely come after us Let's if we do dive that. into REM, okay. in- into the pool. The let's water, collapse, the water let's is collapse, fine. Into, let's collapse into, now. into now. Yeah, <laughs> oh Let's accelerate. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be a total nightmare. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, this was the first REM record that I bought, like right when it came out, that I was anticipating because I uh, I was a fan of Green. Um, I think I had Green and Document at the time, uh, and I remember this. I got this right before going to Washington D.C. on a like a school. Uh, I was on the the Constitution team, uh, and we went to compete against other schools in Washington D.C. And I had my Discman, and I brought uh, Out of Time and listened to it nonstop throughout that trip. So anytime I put it on now, I remember like being like a you know nerdy sixteen uh, year old yep. in uh, in Washington D.C. And yeah, I, I was I was eleven at the time, and you introduced me to this album, Woo! and I fell in love with it immediately. So it was your first introdu- It was your introduction to REM. I had probably heard "It's the End of the World as We Know It" because that song really appealed to the eighty oh, sure. eight year old. But you know, this was my first foray into a full album where I was like, this this band is certifiable in what they do and and make hit records. Yeah. I have vague memories of really being into Green when it was released. Mm-hmm. And I think see this is one of the interesting aspects of REM and talking about how Out of Time was their their seventh album. And I think when you look at the career trajectory of REM, what's so interesting about them is how different so if you look at a band like Death Cab for Cutie, when they sign with a major label, there are some differences, some meaningful differences in their music from their earlier stuff. But not they didn't stray. No. They haven't strayed too much. But when you look at REM, their first six records are considered these indie, uh, almost countercultural. Uh, they, they were a subculture in themselves. And when they hit though with Green, I guess it started with Document was where you started to see it. But then when yeah. Green hit, I feel like that's when they went into the mainstream. And it was such a different. They attracted a completely different fan base. Our generation, because I share similar, like when I got into REM, it's a similar time frame as you guys. And I think a lot of REM fans prior to that, they were they were signed out at that point, and we yes. were in a completely different fan base was signing in because they were no longer a rock band; they were a pop band, which is you know the, a big difference. Well, it was and that was the first time they made a hit video. I think for Stand, I remember seeing Stand on MTV a lot. Yeah, for the longest time, they wouldn't even premiere in their videos. Right. I don't know if Stan was the first video that the entire band agreed to appear in, or maybe it was something off of a document. I, I have to look that one up. But. I don't know why. They're so attractive. Why wouldn't they put them <laughs> on camera immediately? Yeah, but you know, even when you look at that video to Stan, which for me, and I think a lot of people, I have like dim memories of... of watching seeing that video and being it was sort of entertaining more than anything it's It's real goofy goofy. but losing my religion then hits and like you're talking about something completely different a whole different scale of of song well let's let's start out listening to losing my religion it's a good it's a good place to start off with this album I have a lot that I want to say about this. Okay. Uh, let's start out with, 
how many big hit records were coming out at the time that start off with a nice uh, mandolin, mandolin intro, co- yeah. intro coming in? Oh, God, I love this. The meaty fucking ACDC mandolin <laughs> riffs. I mean, <laughs> you don't remember the 80s, but it, I do. It, it's, it's really incredible. This song kind of defied logic in terms of what people were yep. listening to at the time. You know, you're barely coming into the grunge movement. You're coming out of the kind of 80s pop hits slash hair metal that was going on. This found this niche right in the middle of it all where it shouldn't have been a hit, but was enormous. Now, I always like to break down how songs are written, and they do a very, very short intro, Mm -hmm. a short what's called a verse, and then this song's chorus seems to have two parts to it, and they come into it almost immediately Without a chord change or anything like that. So are you saying, are you considering that's me in the corner to be the start of the chorus? Yes. Yeah, I think so. But it's, it's one we talked about this last time we were talking about how, how like the, the beat and the underlying sample will stay constant throughout a song on doggy style that like there are, there are ways to mark the chorus without having to actually change the chord progression or even like the instrumentation. We can't possibly be the first people to compare out of time to doggy style, right? Oh, we're going to, we're going to go back to that. <laughs> you know, I was reading an interview with Michael Stipe where he was talking about that, that line, you know, that's me in the corner. And he said, I really wish I would have just changed that to that's me in the driveway or that's me in the kitchen, yeah. anything other than that's me in the corner. <laughs> um, another interesting thing I read about that song is the final track that they needed to lay down for that was the was Mike Mills' bass line. Jake, you might find this interesting as a bassist. Uh, Mike Mills couldn't figure out, he, he didn't have a bass line for it, and so he asked himself, just in listening to the, the song, the demo that they had, uh, what would John McVie do? That was what nice. he, and he, and he, so he credits John McVie for his bass line on Losing My Religion. So, you know what, something that occurred to me while listening to this just now is, if you, if this were a hit today, I could almost see this being a hit on country radio. Yep. Well, I actually read an article that said that this album took R.E.M. away from their rock roots and kind of moved them into a country direction. And you listen through the entire album and it does have quite a country feel to it. I think they always had a little bit of that. You know, Mm -hmm. their early stuff is kind of like Flannery O'Connor meets William Faulkner meets like the Grateful Dead. I mean, there was a little bit of that, but I, I, by and large, I agree with what you're saying there. I try to think of, can you guys name a song from that era or any hit similar to Lose my religion i would say actually the closest thing i can think of would be crash test dummies yeah huh. <laughs> you know that, yeah. that's like the closest was it mm, is that how you yes, pronounce that yes so, somebody actually asked me this week if we would be covering that album on this show hmm. uh the answer is no <laughs> i mean we could do we could do like a five minute episode on just that song <laughs> yeah and then just be done with it uh well, well I, I almost want to say like like lucinda williams Mm-hmm. You know, just in terms Car of like wheels using, on a gravel road. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. what that's what came to mind. Yeah, that's a really that's a good thought. I like that. Well, I never put that put those two together. The, this song for me, kind of, it it's the epitome of the entire album, and it somehow grabbed people at a time when everything else was really polished, really poppy, and I want to say here that Doggy Style, which once again we covered uh-huh. last week sold total as of today 8 million albums in the United States 12 million albums mm-hmm. worldwide this album sold 4 million copies in the United States I think and 18 million copies yeah. worldwide so this is like 100% more gangsta yes totally that's it's global I'm, it's I'm, global gangsta I'm glad you get get my point uh-huh. no it it really struck a chord worldwide in terms of the sound of it in terms of what it was uh, it just seemed to appeal to a mass audience. Well, and I mean, R.E.M. was a huge band, but there was never a time when there were a bunch of bands that sounded like R.E.M. You know, you could maybe say like a uh, Gin Blossoms, kind of. Who? Any anyone else that really was? No, you no. Know, I mean, like a lot of a lot of like indie bands for sure. But but uh, you know, it, they 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 didn't spawn a. A movement of, of copycats. And it's interesting because when you look at all of the bands that R.E.M. has influenced and you look at even Kurt Cobain talking about them all the time in, in interviews and, and Tom York, they're not even a rock band per se. Right. I mean, they were a rock band at one point in their career, but as we're discussing, like once they hit with Green, they started to become more of a pop band. So it's really interesting to me when you look at that 90s scene with 
grunge coming out of Seattle and then even just the bigger music scene in general, REM was never really, they were not like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They were not like any other <laughs> band. True. But yet all of those bands looked up to them uh, and their music was, yeah. and I guess that's part of what made makes them or what made them such a special band is that they were literally in a, in a category all unto themselves. Well, question here for you guys. How much of that do you think has to do with the fact that they came out of Athens, Georgia, a place that was mostly known for country or this Southern rock thing, Mm -hmm. but was a college town that was kind of isolated from everything else going on? I think a lot of it. I mean, you look at it really is a a zeitgeist when you look at R.E.M. because the members like Michael Stipe was a military brat who really wasn't from Athens, but moved there. But just the way that they came together and and that scene at that time, it's one of those things where you can have a band. It, it shows you how much really needs to happen to create something just bigger than life. And for, for R.E.M., it's not just about you can have a band that has great musicians that writes great songs that don't become R.E.M. But right. you really need some outside factors to come together that just makes it the right people at the right time, the right place, you know, for sure. Yeah. And I think R.E.M. had that. I think they definitely fell into that. Yeah, and they kind of hit their stride, like, just as as alternative music. Everyone was looking toward alternative music as, like, you know, this is going to be our next thing. Yes. And I think unlike other other contemporaries of theirs, like The Replacements or, or Husker Du, they were the only band that was able to evolve. You know, their sound evolved yes. to, such a, yes. like, to, to become a little bit more mainstream. They were able to do that where... I mean, other bands either weren't able to or just simply didn't want to, yep. you know, which is entirely possible. Speaking of Husker Du, I am so fond of the new Bob Mould solo record. It's so But Bob Mould has never sucked. I know. He has never not <laughs> like, put anything, something I, out that's I've great. I've enjoyed everyone, but this is possibly my favorite. It's so good. It's And it's dad rock. I yes, listen to it. I'm like, time. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then I remember like, oh, no, it's really not cool anymore. Like, <laughs> it's Bob the being, opposite of cool. Oh, that's right. I have three children. <laughs> right. That's what's going on Exactly. Here. But I remember when listening to like, Husker or do I mean made you very cool? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was a like, long time ago, eighty six. I remember something. going into Mr. Cheapo's on Long Island, Jericho Turnpike in Long Island, and my older brother had told me about Who's Do, but I didn't know how to pronounce their name. And the guys that worked at the store were really great guys, but music snobs of course and i'm like do you have any husker do records and they just kind of looked at me like oh here we go again this is a totally scene from high fidelity yeah exactly <laughs> yes uh let's listen to the opening track of the album radio song hey i can't find nothing on the radio uh you'll turn to that station almost feel like this is so obviously embarrassing that we need to reclaim it. Like, it needs to go back around from embarrassing to like, hey, there was actually something there. It is simultaneous. It's a very hard song to describe because you look at great energy, great urgency, a very positive sort of singable, but terrible too. It's yes. a, a very conflicted thoughts on, on that song. The, the first thing that came to mind when I was listening to this again is Identity Crisis. Uh-huh. The song has such an identity crisis. Yes. It's like, we're going to be a funk band that's yes. got a rap track on it, but the beginning of the song is so R.E.M. It's one of my favorite opening licks to oh, any absolutely. album ever. We are the arpeggio band. Yeah, yep. exactly. It's like, this is what Peter Buck does yes. so well. And I was going to discuss, my intro to this song was the 
uh, movie singles. Oh, sure, and, sure, sure. And every time I hear the intro to this song, I think of that scene where the two of them have got together for the first time and are listening to records together. And the scene comes in and that opening arpeggio comes in and it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. It's so good. And here's why you don't mess with that song, especially back in, you know, 91 when it was released, because R.E.M. was just their ascent, as we're talking about. They were just really hitting in terms of the mainstream, but they had a ton of credibility. And then they're bringing in KRS-One. So whether you like the song or not, I mean, I remember watching the video to that and just the notion, and this is why you have to give REM credit for the song even though it's in some ways it fails it's one of those great amazing brilliant failures because it's yep. REM and KRS KRS one and KRS one obviously one of the you know the, the better rappers especially from that from that era so bringing those two together was was mind-blowing and it had been done I guess with you know Aerosmith and Run DMC but not in that kind of way <laughs> no definitely not or I'll give you guys a little bit of trivia was that the last time REM would collaborate on a song uh, on one of their records with a rapper well, I'm sure the answer is no, or you wouldn't have asked it that way. An underrated REM song that no one talks about that is actually fantastic and is almost, it's like they got it right, was on Around the Sun, The Outsiders with Q-Tip. Okay. Great song. No Check kidding. it out. A man walks away when every muscle says to stay. How many yesterdays, they each weigh heavy. Who says what changes may come? Who says what we call home? I was shocked to discover that this song was nominated for Best Rock Song of the Year during the Grammys. <laughs> Luckily didn't win, but I mean, I feel like somebody at the Grammys was like, well, I mean, it's such a good album. It has such a big hit. We got to acknowledge right. that the album didn't just have one thing going well, for it, right? I think they did release it as a single. Oh, they, of course yeah. they released it as a single. I don't think that it, it would have been nominated for Best right. Rock Song if it had, hadn't been. But but it, it also goes to show you that you're listening to that song, and, and when you listen to the lyrics... It's when I consider, you know, when from Murmur to Green or really from Murmur to Document, R.E.M. was Peter Buck's band. And Michael Stipe was, was singing. I mean, Peter Buck was the driving force creatively and Stipe was writing lyrics. But half the time he was just trying to find concepts and themes that worked that weren't really coming from him, but he was taking them from other places. But I feel like on document he started to get his yep. lyrical legs under him. Green, he was feeling it. And at a time it was like the first record where Stipe was like kind of taking REM over in a sense and I think that's where where REM and a lot of those places where you start talking about like the perception of REM or their output of REM that first era of REM was all about Peter Buck the middle era of REM was all about Michael Stipe and lyrically he was always a little bit awkward and then the last part of was REM was all about not having Bill Berry <laughs> right exactly it was about not having Bill Berry and, and, and you know Bill Berry being REM's editor in chief so yeah. it was like Peter Buck owned the band in the beginning Stipe then took it over in the middle era and then it was a tussle for that at the end or almost like a who cares towards the last few records so what is the message of this song is that is it that kids are zombies because they spend all their time listening to the radio i think it's like radio sucks is the message but okay. we want to make a song that's going to be a radio hit okay. it sounds like sure I don't, I don't know that's a good question so when you mentioned like you know obviously uh i'm sure krs1 was an rem fan and was delighted to be asked to play with rem uh and vice versa. Um, this reminded me of uh, a couple years ago, I was in Toronto and I did not get to go to either of these shows, but I noticed like I opened up the paper and I was like, oh, uh, two things that are playing tonight are Kendrick Lamar and Spoon. And I'm like, you know, tonight Kendrick Lamar and Britt Daniel are going to be hanging out because there's no one else in Toronto cool enough to hang out with either of those Without guys. Without a doubt. I wonder, <laughs> they should have gotten together and did their own little radio Absolutely. song. <laughs> God. Uh, Rich, why don't you pick a song to listen to? Can we pick something that didn't make the record? Okay. Okay, right. so when you look at R.E.M. B-sides through the years, they have a couple of, and I really think on the later albums, on, on the you know, the ones in the 2000s that Jake can't name, uh, they made a few mistakes in terms of leaving certain songs that were fantastic off of records. But the first one that they really are known for, that R.E.M. fans are wondering, like, why the hell didn't that make the record, was called It's a Free World Baby. There are two songs from Out of Time that didn't make the record, actually, that uh, from that recording session um, one of them is called fretless that was ended up on a movie right, soundtrack that. That was good. at some point that was really that was good but you kind of understood why they didn't put sure. it on there but it's a free world baby whole different ball game should have made the record didn't what are you gonna do okay uh what i found on spotify is a version that says it's from the friends soundtrack with dialogue oh all right oh I god never heard this one <laughs> 
keep listening along being terrified that like Joey is going to start talking at <laughs> I was any moment. The exact yes. same thing. You know, when he, when Stipe does the a refrain in the chorus where he, I hit my head and then Mills said he hit his head. Yes. It's like the closest REM ever comes to, to being a, fish. Yes. <laughs> like, like it sounds like it, it sounds like something on hoist, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mike Gordon would absolutely love that. Um, this really, this is the first time I've heard this song. Um, it really brings out the fact that this band is a trio with a, a vocalist in the front. It, you can really feel just the drums, the bass, mm-hmm. and the arpeggiated guitar that was kind of that REM sound. And that gets lost a little bit on, out of time for most of the tracks because it was so lush in its production with the string arrangements, with extra vocals, uh, everything that they were adding in going on. You know, there there are sparse tracks on there for sure, like Low, but a lot of it was this overproduced Warner Brothers wants a A lot of people played on this album. Yeah, when when I looked at the credits, it's like, well, I'm not even going to try and remember any of those. (laughs) Well, and it's also just interesting because I think you're right. When you look at, even when I see videos of the Unplugged from this era and you see the band just visually... And when you hear this this music, I would agree. Everyone would say this is the tr- the trademark REM sound, which is really interesting when you consider it's their seventh record. It's such a different sound. It really shouldn't be their trademark sound because they had six full albums, five you know, their first five albums with a completely different sound that you'd consider. It's just it's strange to me that their sound took such a it was such a turn. And it was such a different sound for them, and it's now considered their trademark sound when they yes. had six great records, and no one talks about their sound on those albums. Quick side note on that Unplugged recording. Uh, Greatest Unplugged, man. It, it, I love that Unplugged. Boy, the, the Nirvana fans are going to hate you for that one. <laughs> I would, Yeah, Nirvana Unplugged, but it's up there. Um, so at that point, they hadn't been touring for a long time, and uh, MTV said, we want you to do Unplugged. They look at the set list, and they said, you can't do this without playing It's the End of the World as, you, as we know it. You right. have to put this song in. And Michael Stipe was like, I haven't sung that song in five years. I don't remember any of the lyrics to it. And when you watch the recording of Unplugged, he's got them on a stand in front of him, and it's really clear that he is just reading along the lyrics. Yep. And he finishes it with this fine Fine. Nah. (laughs) It's like, shit, I'm so glad we made it through that thing. Yeah, I remember that, like, um, I didn't see the Green Tour, and then I was like, okay, great, like, they're going to have a new album, I'm going to go see R.E.M. when they tour on this new album. They didn't. Then they released uh, Automatic for the People, they're like, we're not going to tour for this one either, and I I remember for years feeling like... I don't know if I'm ever going to get to see R.E.M. And what's interesting about that, too, is the first time I had seen them, it was my second concert ever. It was actually oh, on the, the Monster Tour. And that blew my mind because I saw it was at Madison Square Garden. And I remember thinking, how is a band this weird playing to these people in a packed Madison Square Garden? Like, it just didn't... I, I just oh, I thought it was amazing that you can have someone like Michael Stipe and a band like R.E.M. who were so unique singing to college fraternity Mm -hmm. kids, you know. But one of the interesting things for me is, and when you talk about, again, that early history of REM, they weren't playing a lot of early REM material on those tours anymore. They were just playing uh, most songs from the last five or six years, really from Document, I think, on. And that's a curious, and and I, I wonder if that's part of the reason why some of their earlier stuff, though critically acclaimed and well respected, isn't as really remembered as much as it should be because a lot of the songs weren't getting played live um, and hadn't and haven't really since that era yeah that's a good point i'm trying to see if i can pull up a a set list from, yeah. uh, from that the monster, monster tour, tour was very you know obviously very monster heavy i remember the disco ball with tongue which was one of the oh, weirdest yeah, yeah, rem yeah. songs uh ever but uh, here's here's the first time I saw REM is November 1st, 1995 at the Great Western Forum. Uh, we got a good, you know, remember when you had to line up at the record store and, and uh, they would give you a number? It was the best. It was the worst. <laughs> um, and uh, we drew, drew a good number. So we had main floor seats and uh, sitting in the row right in front of us was Adam Duritz. Oh, well, talk about a band uh, influenced by REM. Was I mean, he enjoying the show? I mean, do you, uh, I, he seemed to be enjoying the show. Like, did he I, he smell might, terrible? He was probably really drunk. Was he really? I mean, drunk? I had to like lean to the side to see over his hair. He was um, handsome. He was dating. Did he have? I'm sure he had a very attractive girlfriend with yeah, him at the time. Absolutely. Didn't he date the entire cast of Friends? Speaking of Friends, <laughs> which keeps coming back. That seems right. Wasn't he one of the few people that dated both Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox? God bless him. I believe you. I, yeah. I, I think he dated David Schwimmer too. And actually, David <laughs> wow. Um, even more impressive than I thought. 
<laughs> oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, the oldest songs they played uh, at this show. Oh, they played South Central Rain in the encore, but in the main set. Uh, they played a couple things from Green. That was really about it. Well, I could not believe this, and I don't know if it's true, but I saw them on the up tour in Boston, and uh, during the encore, Michael, it was the last show on that up tour, I believe, and Michael Stipe came out and said, this is the first time we're playing this song since 1983, and it was Radio Free Europe. And wow. I don't know if that's true, wow. but I remember thinking, how is this the first time that, but they didn't, you're right. They, yeah, they, he was just They lying. would give you a South Central Rain. They'd yep. give those fans that came from the old days, like one or two songs in the encore. But for the most part, they they abandoned that material live. It's a shame. Driver 8 is probably my favorite oh, REM song. Yeah. Yeah. And then they did Auctioneer. Uh, one of the last times I saw them, they started bringing, they started bringing early REM songs back uh, in the last tour or two. By that point, the, the horse was way out of that barn. Maybe they were smart to do things the way that they did. I I always think about uh, the Eagles' Hell Freezes Over tour, not an Eagles fan, and how they but were- But you did go see that tour 16 times for some reason. I, I couldn't quite make it to Arkansas, unfortunately. Uh, they opened the show supposedly with uh, Hotel California, and I always had this thought like, you can't open the show with the no. hit song. Everybody's going to get up and yes. leave. Except when your band is the Eagles. I guess. <laughs> Apparently so. I've never been able to get into the Eagles. We'll talk I, about I that another the, time. I hate the fucking Eagles, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about, um, I would like to play Shiny Happy People. Yeah. And do we want to talk about it after or do we want to talk about it before? Because well, there's a lot to say about it. Is, is, there, is there something you want to set up? I just, there's something I just want to say. I don't understand why this song is considered... I mean, I understand why. I, I, the band has sort of, they threw this song under the bus. Interesting, yeah, So many true. times, and I don't understand why they've done that. First of all, it's a great pop song. It's one of their most popular songs, and they released it on an album, and to betray it, has I just feel like it's it's wrong, and uh, I'm I'm here to stick up for shiny happy people. And also, Kate Pearson is great, here and we she go. is amazing with REM. Yes. picture what it would have been like if they had had Fred Schneider in there instead of Kate <laughs> Pearson doing all those Probably <laughs> identical. Um, what I was thinking at the beginning when he, when he says, you know, does a little like, whoa, like, like you know, here we go. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine like him being replaced with uh, Greg Graffin from Bad Religion saying, yeah, hey. <laughs> you know, when you have a song, they put that's uh, the end of Green. They had a song called The Hair Shirt. There's a song maybe you want to regret. And hair shirt, yeah. but I I don't I don't know why they don't. Or any song where Peter Buck plays drums. Yes. <laughs> or any song where Peter Buck sings or provides any kind of background mm-hmm. vocals. I I love the structure of this song. Yeah, I uh, do too. And an intro that doesn't match with the rest of the even rhythm, let alone melodies. But then of the does song. come back but, later. But they bring it back later. It's got this really interesting pre-chorus that doesn't lead into an actual chorus. Like they right. do, it leads into an instrumental section before they sing the chorus. Like there's just so many different pieces to it. And yes, the lyrics kind of conjure up this total cheesiness the same way that Stan did. Right. That's what I was going to ask you. Do, do you think that Shiny Happy People is Stan part two? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. They were two huge hits for them. They're so singable. I mean, Yeah, people... there's nothing wrong with this song. And they felt similarly, they felt the same way about Stan. They wouldn't do that song live. I mean, every once in a while they would throw it into a set, but 
by and large, it's strange that phenomena. I don't, you can, guys can do a whole episode on bands that refuse to sing. I just never understood that. It's like an artist refusing to show like their, their most famous painting they've ever done or something, mm-hmm. you know? Well, this, this was a band with a little bit of an identity crisis. Yeah. They, they would, I mean, they had this risk of becoming a joke rock band if they kept down that path of stand shiny happy people that's true it's almost like losing my religion was this way of going no 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 we are very very serious about what we do and really their their first big hit the one i love was a dark kind of brooding type of song right and they were really annoyed when people thought it was a love song <laughs> yeah they were they didn't like that at all and it but it kind of it was yeah <laughs> I, I mean i uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know what else to say about shiny happy people except that it's a really, really well written song. Yeah, I mean, I think if you don't want to be known for a song, don't release the song, especially as a single. I mean, yeah, come on. I mean, because like I can understand not wanting to be remembered as the bare naked ladies, um, but at all. <laughs> but who, who, for all I know, have some like really good serious songs? But do, no. Okay. Do, do you think? That, do you think that shiny happy people was hurt at all by having the cheesiest video? ever made to, I, to accompany it. I don't remember it. That's like, you know, was Stand ruined because Get a Life had it as the theme? And it, it's really interesting, right? R.E.M. would say no. They said no to Microsoft in 95 when Microsoft wanted to make R.E.M.'s, or the, REM's music the the sound of their like future. But yet they, they said yes to Chris Elliott and Get a mm-hmm. Life. And I, I feel like Stand, that did more damage to Stand than anything else. That had to be a timing thing. They just got signed to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers are saying, how else can we put you on the map? By 95, the band could be like, we are worldwide success. We don't need any of you anymore. Well, right. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to bring it up a little bit earlier. We changed topics, but the the um, stats that you threw out there with REM in terms of their global sales, I think that was that's what made Warner Brothers give R.E.M. the highest recording contract of all time after New Adventures and Hi-Fi, which was a five-record deal for $80 million. That right. was $10 million oh, more than, about that. than Mariah Carey's deal prior to that. And the reason why they did that was because they said, look, even this is the kind of band we want to align ourselves with, and, we want, and, and their international sales were so high that they thought, even if they decline a little bit in the States, they're still going to be huge worldwide, which, by the way, that did remain to be true. And that's uh-huh. why I'm pretty sure Warner's, believe it or not, recouped on that on that deal because like I remember going to see REM on the reveal tour and I couldn't I, I was in Marley Park in Dublin I could not believe how into that new music European fans were those songs were hit like Imitation of Life from Reveal which by the way is an awesome REM song that no, was a major like that, that was a major yeah. hit over there but anyway that's why REM signed them because of those the global sales but can you imagine that your your Warner Brothers records you sign this band who you're really pinning your hopes of your label on and then their drummer leaves and they put out up you know, which yeah. was like their most experimental record ever at that time. Well, while they were they were the cursed band for a while. I mean, you look at that uh, post monster ninety five through ninety eight era, and Bill yeah, they, Bar- they had post monster syndrome. Y- yep. Bill Berry gets incredibly sick. I think Peter Buck got injured or or something happened. Well, Bill or- Berry had an aneurysm, and yeah. then and then uh, yeah, Peter uh, Mike Mills had. Sur- uh, surgery, like an emergency surgery. I think it was something relatively minor, like a hernia or something, but it was on tour. Um, so they had to cancel some dates. Uh, Michael Stipe, there were rumors that he had AIDS. Right. It was everything kind of blew. And you know what, what, what's interesting? Peter Buck trashed a hotel room. Peter, or, he, he, he was got doing arrested that. on a plane. Got, like that. that was, yes, that was that. That was a, a few years later, but that yeah. was an interesting one. But, you know, Monster, really one of our, like if you look at the inconsistencies of albums like Green and Out of Time, Great records, but inconsistent records. Monster was their most consistent. Well, Absolutely, automatic for the people was awesome, but Monster was a very consistent record from start to finish. I don't, I still don't understand why that record is trashed. Well, one, is. one of the things I was going to mention about this album is listening back throughout of time for the first time in many years. It's not a very cohesive album. It seems to have these filler tracks in between what are actual songs. And so it works as a whole album all the way through. But compared to a lot of 90s albums where they were trying to come up with a concept, trying to have an album flow, this album doesn't flow very well. It feels like here's a great song and now we're going to let you listen to this real quick while we figure out what song to put next on the album. And and they got much, much better at putting together albums after this. Yeah, I I think you're right about that. And I think Automatic for the People, which followed this record, is the perfect example of that. It makes you wonder if 
they felt the same way about this album and they put a little bit because I think if you look at out of time certain things like even the track the way that they uh, set up the track listing on this one and and seg these songs some of them like losing my religion feels weird to me as the second song on uh-huh. the on the record yeah I agree um it, there, there's just certain things you wonder like what the what was behind the decision making process but regardless they they nailed it on automatic for the people yep and yeah, I, I know what you mean about Monster. Monster is exciting. I, I, I like it a lot, too. I have fond memories of it. I wrote a review of it for my college newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that they went in saying, like, you know, okay, this is going to be our rock record. We're going to turn up the amps. We're going we're gonna to, like, roll out the tremolo pedal. And uh, everything has to work within that framework. Yeah, uh, that's I agree. fun. When a band is good enough to to uh, you know their their songwriting skills are are at the level where they can they can make those decisions, and it's still going to be a lot of fun. I think that that's a really good analysis of that record. But and also, I'll throw a theory out there sure. as to why that record ended up in every single used CD bin. <laughs> Like there were always fifteen copies for six ninety five of that of that yeah, record. And here's my theory behind it. So we've been discussing. You have their first, you know, their first six or so records that were these underground indie sort of subcultural kind of records, and then they hit with pop records that are massively huge. And then they go, you know, what we're going to do from for Monster. We're going to make a grungy sort of Mott the Hoople-ish kind of uh, glammy rock record. And I think at that point in time, the cool rock rock kids that listened to them early on had checked out and the pop fans that had checked in yeah. during that time were like, what is this? And so I think a lot of people were turned off by that record, which if you go and listen to now, has honestly aged as well or better than any REM record. And I know like REM fans are going to hear like, what? If you go back and listen to that record. But I just think there was really no... It was big because they were so huge, but there really wasn't an audience for that because it was almost like the fans that they were trying to reach with that, let's say grunge fans, like fans of Nirvana, or if they were trying to show we can rock like Soundgarden and Nirvana, I think they proved it, but I just don't think anyone was interested in hearing it from them at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think in interviews at the time, what they said was, uh, you know, I'm sure that was in their minds, but that, uh, you know, they didn't want to go out, they wanted to go out on tour and they didn't want to have to play just all of these songs from out of time and automatic for the people in stadiums. Um, you know, they wanted to be able to rock out and so they needed to write some songs to do that. Yeah, I don't think that low is a stadium hit at all. Well, that's an interesting point because I think, you know, looking at these songs, they never played radio song live. So they'd play Losing My Religion live. Mm-hmm. They would do uh, Half a World Away occasionally, which we should talk about because that to me is the song on, on Out of Time where uh, in hindsight you go, that's where Automatic for the People, yep. that's where it started, right? But Country Feedback, so really from from Out of Time, it was Losing My Religion they, they played live and uh, Country Feedback, other than that – there were really none of these songs that they took with them. So I think you're right. Yeah, that, that's, that makes sense that with Monster, and they did, when they went on that Monster tour, that was such a, they would play almost every song off that record. Yep. Okay, so which one do you want to listen to next? We got we got time for two more songs, uh, Country Feedback or Half World Away. Take your Let's pick. listen to Half World Away. Yeah, I can I say, this song. is my favorite REM song. Oh, so I love okay. this song. Saddest us ever seen turn to a miracle. I lie, my mind is racing, as it always will. My hands tired, my heart aches. I'm half a world away. Here, my head sworn to go to long. I just wanted to get to where he said my shoes are gone. (laughs) Cut cut it right there. (laughs) So that to me has, it's find the river and sweetness follows. It has Mm -hmm. that same. And it also captures the essence of of R.E.M., I think. And at least for me, there's that scene in in High Fidelity. And I don't think it was in, I don't think Nick Hornby wrote this in the book where where, um, John Cusack's character says, 
I don't know. Am I depressed because I love pop music or do I love pop music because I'm depressed? Yeah. And I think there's always an element of that in R.E.M.'s music. And what I love is it takes personalities like and I can relate to this personally that you where you tend to be somewhat down and you like to sort of dwell in that place but then at the end there's a feeling like okay it things might be all right and I think that's what REM captures oh, at their that's best so true and that's know? why I felt like when I when I listen to everybody hurts it feels like almost a betrayal of that totally I, right I, I, that's why I cannot relate to that song and I've never thought about it that way but it's way too overt yes you know for sure yeah where this this song has this counterpoint of they've uh, written these well Michael Stipe has written these really sad lyrics and they've set it to this really happy light music mm-hmm. uh, the the counterpoint of that is is just awesome yeah. Jake what's your favorite REM song oh man that that's you on the spot think about it he, he's not going to say anything off the albums from the 2000s because he can't name those. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually very true. Do you, um, how familiar are you with their like the first the, the 80s albums? Well, I think I mentioned earlier, Driver Eight is my favorite REM song. Like, oh right, okay. Like I I still can listen to that song. That's a good choice. Uh, over and song. over again, and it it is so good. And a lot of that early stuff really really appealed to me. Like by the time they got to Out of Time, you know, this was my first intro to them aside from hearing them on the radio a little bit, but going back and listening to everything, I'm a big fan of those first five albums more than Oh, me too. Those records are, if you were to equate it to literature, it would be like, I mentioned a little bit, something like out of Faulkner, like As I Lay Dying or a Flannery O'Connor book. And then the middle era, the out of time era would be a little bit more, I'm trying to think of a mainstream, maybe it would be a little bit more like Nick Hornby, yeah. high fidelity kind of commercial sound. And then I'm trying to, the, the recent albums, I don't know where you'd put them. Maybe uh, like they're more of a, uh, like Mitch album. I don't know. Oh no. Oh, no, <laughs> no, they're not that no, bad. No. <laughs> uh, so, so Rich, I want to ask you because uh, you sent me a text this morning when you read the intro that I had written for this uh why do you feel that they didn't fade into obscurity? And you and I have had this conversation before where uh, I have this strong feeling that REM kind of disappeared, even though they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though they had hit after hit. When you listen to the radio every day, at least in Seattle, you hear Nirvana, you hear Pearl Jam, you hear Soundgarden, you hear the hits from the early 90s, and you never hear REM, ever. Why? I think I think there are a lot of different reasons for that. First of all, I I don't know that REM it's it's hard to it's hard to discuss like the perception of a band. So if you look at again out of time, right? We're talking about it as an inconsistent record. Okay? So but a lot of people for a lot of people it's their favorite REM yeah. record and it was their first massive record. It had two hits on it one of which is considered the cheesiest REM hit of all time. So now right. you're taking Out of Time, a record that everyone agrees is has beautiful songs on it. It's a fine album, and but it's considered massive because they had a huge hit and the mainstream took to it. And then I think on their recent albums, they had, so if you look at Reveal, they had songs on there. It was, the album was similarly structured in a sense of there were some inconsistencies but they had great songs in there but the perception around rem changed so what i try to think about when i look at rem's full you know from start to finish now especially in hindsight is how much of how much did the bands the quality of their material decline and i think there's some of that but i don't know how much there is of that versus just rem never really being a band that tried to play to the mainstream and right. so the main the, the mainstream came to rem rem didn't go to the mainstream and then the mainstream went its own separate ways and rem went its own separate ways i just don't know what what that the different i, I just think there it's more perception with rem than reality and i think from a perceptive point of view in terms of their legacy with bill berry leaving and them signing that huge deal it was very easy to just knock rem down as we do with any artist or anyone that is massive that's part of the fun, right? right? But I think, like, to to get to the radio question, like, they're sort of not hard in the right way and not soft in the right way. You know, they're, they're not going to be played on country radio because they weren't considered a country act, but that's where you find kind of the, the soft contemplative songs. Um, you know, they were not a, a grunge band, so, uh, you know, they're not going to be thrown in on, on uh, you know, alternative radio after a Pearl Jam song. You know what I would compare them to is Bell and Sebastian. 
Um, you know, in the sense that, you know, Bell and Sebastian is never going to be as big as R.E.M. was, but they're a very successful band. They, they play to, uh, you know, a uh, few thousand seat theaters and sell them out. Uh, they have legions of devoted fans. Where are you going to play a Bell and Sebastian song? Only on KEXP. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I also think when you look at someone like Michael Stipe, as he really came into his own, you know, I don't really know that, even though R.E.M. has always been a very political band, I don't really know how much it came across to fans when they were massive. And then I think when they started their decline in terms of popularity and kept coming with the politics, I think yeah. Michael Stipe, frankly, a lot of it might be because you, there might be homophobic with Michael Stipe because he was sure. more, he didn't he didn't come out until the late 1990s. And when he came out, he really came out. And I think there might be some of that there. And also in the politics of R.E.M. where they just went in a completely there's there was something about Bruce Springsteen where he could still be super political and his right wing fans would be into it. Yeah. R.E.M. was so over the top and overt with it that I think it turned a lot of people off. And I don't think R.E.M. cared. The only thing that I'll add here, and I don't know why we keep bringing up high fidelity since R.E.M. has nothing to do with that movie is. Is it better to burn out than to fade away? Well, yeah. look, the the, uh, the last thing I'll say about it, no, it won't be the last thing I'll say about <laughs> it, but um, is I also think that in terms of their trajectory, the way technology started to change and the way the industry started to change, they were just in that perfect place where they were the last band of an era that where you could be was still massive. And then I think when the market started to fragment, you had, you know, when Napster hit and all of a sudden all of these everything just blogs hit and you don't I mean how many bands are massive like Beyonce is huge now yeah. who else is, is massive I think R.E.M. was like the face of that in a lot of ways um, but I also do think that when it comes to to bands there is a an intangible um, in terms of like R.E.M. had always joked around that if one of the band members were to leave they would break up and they broke that promise and then they always said they would break up on you know New Year's Eve 2000 was a big thing with R.E.M. and they broke that promise and then I think it got to a place where they all had different individual frustrations within the band and they wanted they wanted to still make music but they weren't really doing it for the right reasons and I think that that comes through uh, and I think they lost their muse and kept going and tried to battle it which I yeah. think is admirable though you know I think it's admirable okay. I don't know now you don't agree I'm not I'm not I'm not well, setting I, up a compelling argument here I can it tell it always feels there there's a particular kind of sadness for me that comes with like knowing that this band used to be my favorite band and their new record is coming out and I'm probably not even going to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whether that's the... It's probably more my fault than the fault of the band, like you said. Like, um, you know, I think... Something something that occurred to me recently was um, I quite enjoyed uh, the most recent Pixies reunion album. You know, I don't think it's as good as an, as an original Pixies album, but it's a lot of fun to listen to. It was did not get very good reviews and i think if there had never been a a you know 1980s pixies and this album had come out people would be like whoa this is fun i like this record i think you're i think you're it wouldn't have carried that weight along with it. I think your experience, I think mine would have been very similar if I wasn't like directly in the music industry at that time and wanting to get in with their like you know just because I was such a huge fan and and playing their music and stuff. I think I think it was a strange uh, most REM started feeling that way and then it almost became like REM fans needed like you needed to just they all needed to go to therapy to talk about REM like it, it became one of those things but let's <laughs> yeah. let me let me reframe this a different way okay if REM so i happen to think that up is one of their better albums. They really miss Bill Berry from the editor-in-chief perspective on that because if he would have helped them cut that record down a little bit, I think everyone would look at, look at that album differently. I think that there's enough on the more recent REM material that made it worthwhile. And plus, I got to see them live so many times and they never lost it live. Mm -hmm. But I'll, put, I'll pose this question. If REM had broken up and never saw that deal through, but they broke up after New Adventures when Bill Berry left... Right. And never got back together. Would they be looked at as like Led Zeppelin? Would they be looked at at a level right now like the who? Did they hurt their legacy by staying together? Here's the only reason why I get confused by this. And, and I don't really know an answer. But why is it that Pearl Jam only made two and a half good albums, have put out albums and albums since then and still st sell out stadiums and are still absolutely enormous? But that did not happen. And they're not even a great live band. Right. And, but I mean, it's, like by, by, you know, traditional. Yeah, no, but I mean, it, it's not about whether they're still popular. There's there's just some sort of like, like, you know, intangible cue factor to it. This is the muse because because right. Pearl Jam plays with a level of it's like. 
people don't demand perfection from their bands, I don't think. They don't demand that they put out albums as good as the Beatles. I think fans, like real music fans, want to know. Like we're talking about Radio Song. It's a great example. It's a failure, but we're like, we love it because yeah. they gave it an, an honest shot. And I think it became, for me as a huge R.E.M. fan, it became, it, part of it is believing that they want to be there and that they're still tapped into doing it for the reasons when they got started, you know, for that love of music yes, and that energy. that's exactly and, it. And I think R.E.M. lost that, where Pearl Jam is all that. I mean, yes. to the point where you're to willing to overlook it's shitty annoying. records, yeah. right? And, and, and a live performance sometimes that, frankly, because you just want to be there and Pearl Jam wants to be there and they have this connection with the audience that I think R.E.M. once had and they lost. And I think you look at someone like Peter Buck and he's a mercurial kind of guy. And I think towards the end, especially... Peter kind of was checked out yeah. of, of R.E.M. And I think that intangible, like what you're saying, is is true. And it became for me, I, I remember one of the worst R.E.M. shows I ever saw was at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Just driving to see them in a casino was a bummer. Yeah. And it was Around the Sun was the album. And they were just up there going through the motions. And that's where they could have sounded great. It didn't matter because I just looked down. I was like, oh, they're... They've, they've stuck around too long. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly it, that you have to you have to, to feel like you can still buy into the fantasy that they care about it as much or, or more than you do. Yeah, and not to go down this rabbit hole, yeah. but that's really what, like I came to fish later in the game mm-hmm. after REM, and it's because I was looking for, and I didn't know what I was looking for, but going to see them live and experiencing that, that joy of like, that's why you love, people love music, they exude it. And I think if they didn't, and in those times where they haven't, their fans are all over it. And I think R.E.M. Was a, is a band that their fans felt so connected with what they were doing that there was a, a sense of feeling betrayed that they became something, whether it was true or not, that they became something that they said they would never become. Yeah, I think um, I think like a good counterexample is Radiohead. And I'm not even so much of a fan of the most the last few Radiohead albums, but I, I feel like they, they have been able to to know when to take a break and know when they're ready to come back together and and revive that so feeling. I have a th- I have a theory yep. in the same way that I think you know fish learned from the dead and literally took the dead as a case study and said how do we rewrite this for us and make it different I think Radiohead who always looked up to REM and you know REM took them out on the road yep. for a really long time I think REM uh, Radiohead has done that with REM to a certain extent and I think like learning from some yes. of those mistakes for sure oh that's so interesting I we're gonna so. do fish uh, I think next time on this show I do yeah, a, a live I, I'd like to watch just watch you guys talk yeah, about you, fish you, because you should have told Rich this. To, now, uh, now, now he's going to become I'm the looking, third member of the show. No, you don't want me. No, I'm not. I'm not there. Then Jake knows that. Jake is very uh, patient with me as a fish. Well, he's going to have to be even more patient with me. <laughs> oh, you're not as into it as. Oh uh, no, okay. I. Uh, we'll, we'll get way well, into this on the fish episode, but like I got, I, I was really excited about uh, the album Rift when that came out. Uh, I think about the next couple albums. Never really realized until years later that they had like a live following and that that uh, you know Fish as a as a jam band was a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to perception, right? We're talking about fans that came into REM with at, around the time of Out of Time or Green and, and Out of Time. It it really is all relative. Like there are coming into a band like Fish recently. Well, within the last say uh, six to eight years or so, there are fans that that I talk to that are like, oh, you missed it. I'm like, are you kidding? This to me, it's really, it's it's a very uh, interesting thing. I think what I take away from it, like stepping back is any band that's around long enough, you look at, look at Neil Young as an artist. Sure. If you're around long enough, look at the Stones, you're going to have those ups and downs. And I think for the most part, looking at REM, they had a 30 year career. We can sit here and talk about whether their last four or five records were great or not. But I think any band that can put a career together that long and maintain that, it's you know it's impossible to do it in a marriage. Never mind in a band where you right. have three or four different members. When you get to that level, and I, I I give them credit just for even if if they got to a place where all they were doing was just pushing ahead, they didn't want to be there. That's something. There's something to be said for that too. Yeah. Whenever anyone says like you missed it or you know like don't go there, it's not cool anymore. It's been ruined by tourism, whatever. Yeah. Um, I always hear that as. I am no longer in my 20s. Totally. (laughs) Or also it's like, okay, let me get this straight. I'm supposed to view how I look at a certain type of uh, music or movie or whatever based on your experience versus my own. You know, come on. But that's that's part of the fun of it, I guess. Well, let's close out with country feedback.
Not not that it was literally a mistake on the studio on the on the uh, the take um, that made the album, but uh, the the part where he says these clothes and then repeats it. Do you think that came out came out of a mistake? And then they're like, "Let's leave it. It's, yeah. It works." That song. Have you guys ever seen the live version of that from Neil Young's Benefit? I don't think so. Uh, go on YouTube and Google that song. REM Neil Young country uh, country feedback. It's. It's seven or eight minutes, and Neil okay. Young and Peter Buck go into this ridiculous guitar solo. It's the best version of that song. Uh, it's just incredible. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. John Keane on pedal steel on that, by the way. Mm-hmm. An Athens superstar. Yeah. So good. I'm probably the only person who would know that. Well, and you know, um, and talking about REM, you have to. They ha- they've had so many. Whether it's Scott uh, towards the last, who's essentially a member of the band post Bill Berry, Bill Reeflin, so many Mitch Easter, Don Dixon, who produced a lot mm-hmm. of. They they've always Peter Holsapple, Peter Holsapple, even you know the the, the un- Ken Stringfellow, the unnameable name, which Jefferson Holt, who like yes, was that was like when REM was getting big, they were like that was like a perfect example of like a Republican way to like shut someone up for a long time, you know, where they they didn't talk to him or you don't you don't hear anyone talk about Jefferson. Holt. I have, a, I have a Jefferson Holt story. Um, <laughs> when uh, when Monster came out and it was clear that they were going to go on tour, um, my uh, my friend Andrew and I wrote a letter to REM. Uh, nominating Andrew as a cello player because he was a very good cello player. <laughs> like, you know, if you guys are taking a cello player out on tour and you've had some great cello parts on your albums, like, how about this guy? And we got a, a, a personal letter back from Jefferson Holt saying they would not be taking a cello player out <laughs> on the monster tour. Do you still have that letter? I don't. I, oh, I wonder man. if Andrew does. I haven't talked to him in years. Yeah. There's that Jefferson, I think, We're Lost mm-hmm. on uh, one of the early songs. And they had they changed it when they would do, that, when they would do it live uh, after they, you know, he was sort of pushed aside or whatever happened in, in that situation. But R.E.M. has always had great side players, great. And I think part of the you know the last few albums, they didn't really have anyone filtering, yeah. helping them filter a lot of that stuff. Well, we made it through this entire episode without mentioning what Rich did when uh, our great president, Donald Trump, got elected. So why don't you explain uh, yeah, about I was, the essay I was walking home. I was walking home from work. Uh, I guess it was right after way to the, bring it down, Jake. Yeah, right after the election, and I was just I was feeling bummed out, and I was going back and listening to REMs because <laughs> that's just what I do all sure. the time. And I was just taking note of how political they have been from their first record, you know, from the Chronic Town EP through Collapse Into Now. And so I went home and I I, I started just writing almost like I, I dissected their lyrics. So I took them all apart and then I started putting them back uh, recontextualizing them just using just REM lyrics but in different from different eras and different songs and I wrote a couple of paragraphs and I sent it to Bertus Downs their manager and I just said you know this would make a great an overall just a great article would yeah. you know would um would the band be you know would they be open to that because I don't want to write it and then have and I don't want to put it out without their permission because that's my band and uh but I I don't want to waste my time because it would take a while right. to do this so uh, I got an email back from Michael Stipe actually who said <gasps> I love this idea uh, my only my only um request is that like I look it over to edit it when you're done oh, and I said amazing. That's, that's amazing because like I I don't want to <laughs> incorrectly state any art and say it's because I knew like you know, the few REM diehards would like look and go, that's not a lyric, right. you know? And so I wrote the entire thing and um, and it was published on pa- uh, in Pace Magazine and it was a fun little- I think I remember this. Yeah, it was a fun little, and, and uh, some of the comments on it were great because it was, I think it was like 3,500 words. So I was like, who the, <laughs> who has the time to do this? But I spent three days, like I don't even know that I went into work. I just stayed up uh, and it was just, I think something that like I needed to do at that time. And it was my little- Protest. Did you get any corrections from Michael Stipe? No, but okay. I got a shout out, and I'm so devastated that he went off of Instagram. Not only because he was so great on it, but because he posted it and just said, "This is such a great article," and had the words, and it was his Instagram post. And all of my friends were like, "That's my friend." Oh. And it felt, I'll say this, yeah, like it felt. I was like, "This is amazing for myself," but it felt really great to know that someone that I've gotten so much joy, like, has given me so much joy that I was able to like kind of reciprocate in a small way that to me was 
was fucking cool. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Like I always I always say like um, one of the best things in the world is being a huge fan of a minor band because you get to often have that personal connection. But yeah. you got to take that to the next level. Exactly. Because usually when I like in the few times I've sort of run into him over the years at shows and whatever, I, it would just be like, remember that one time when you sang that song with Natalie Merchant? That was, <laughs> that was awesome. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it was nice to have something <laughs> a little different experience. Well, I I've been looking forward to uh, saying this all week. We are out of time for oh, the rest of this episode. No. <laughs> can I come back? <laughs> yeah. You, when are we, when are we doing Murmur? Are we gonna do... uh, it's not the 90s. It's not the 90s, man. Okay. We can uh, do up, though. Let's do up. Cause... Rich, is there anything you'd like to plug anywhere people can find you online, social media, whatever you like? Nah, or if not, nothing. that's fine, too. No, I just uh, I want to plug listening to um, what I guess I would just like to leave by saying that people should go out and listen to REM's uh, 2000s material, including you, Jake, because next time I come back, I want you to know the name of of those records fair yeah. enough you know what i'd like to to uh ask if you would if you would send in or leave us with um like a list of a few of your favorite cuts from, post bill from the post bill berry era i can do that okay uh, yes thank you for asking me I, I would love to do that well until next time uh this has been hidden jukebox you can find us at www.hiddenjukebox.com on facebook uh until next time i'm jake amster i'm matthew amster burton and that's rich mclaughlin